0: working through a series on revival and looking at what revival means for us as individuals. And so we started some weeks ago uh, looking at uh, the Word, at Holy Scripture and our relationship to God's Word and how that a relationship with God begins with reading His love letter to us. And then we took a week and looked at the necessity of prayer for every child of God. We discussed how any relationship that you have, that you've ever had, that was close, that was a worthwhile relationship, how was that relationship fostered? Well, it was fostered through time and through communication. After all, we don't have people that we love dearly and we just simply never talk to them, right? And so it's the same with our relationship with God. That we develop a relationship through an earnest prayer life. And then we looked last week at uh, repentance and how any type of revival in our lives involves us being committed to turning away from sin. That sin has no place in our lives. Does that mean that we come out of the waters of baptism and we walk in newness of life and that we never make mistakes again? Well, of course not. But it does mean that when we sin, we recognize it and that we don't enjoy that sin. That we recognize that we've sinned against God and that we may have hurt someone else. And that we earnestly ask God's forgiveness for that sin. That we once again turn away from the sin in our lives. And so today we arrive at Acts chapter two, and we look at what was going on at a festival known as Pentecost. And so want to look today about the role of the Holy Spirit in revival. And so let's look at Acts chapter 2 beginning with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians. Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Now, it mentions that they came on the day of Pentecost because Pentecost was a one-day festival. Pentecost is the Greek word for fifty and so this is 50 days after Passover previously they knew it as the festival of weeks it was something that the Jews would have known as Shavuot and so it was a period of 7 weeks or 49 days and so what it was is a celebration a one day celebrating the end of or the culmination of the grain harvest And so they have harvested their wheat, and if that description kind of sounds like something uh, familiar to us, it reminds me of our Thanksgiving, because the original Thanksgiving was celebrated in the fall at the conclusion of the harvest time. And so uh, and so there's this idea of coming together and giving thanks to God. God, you made the earth. and so God, you have provided uh, what comes out of the ground. And so by the fruit of our labor, And your provision, you know, we thank you for this that you've provided for us. Your grain, and especially wheat, was an important staple in their diet. And so, they're coming together, and as we read about there in Acts chapter 2... That it's people from all over. Uh, Pentecost was one of the festivals, like Passover, that was known as a pilgrimage festival. So you didn't just simply celebrate it right where you lived. That you made that pilgrimage to the holy city of Jerusalem. And so people would come from all over, as was described in that chapter. And so they come together. And now it's been seven weeks since, uh, since Jesus was crucified. We don't know exactly how long it's been since he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. But the disciples are together in one place. It says they're in a room together. And then strange things start to happen, to say the least, right, church? We hear that sound, that we're told, that came from heaven and then imagine this scene as there are these tongues of fire and then they separate and they're on each one of them's head. And what an amazing scene that might have been. Okay, might have been. I mean, it's the kind of thing that would freak you out, right? I mean, we're talking about there are those things in life that we consider natural, and there's things in life that are not natural. This was an element of the supernatural. Why was it happening? Well, because God wanted it to happen, right church? Yeah. God is showing them in a real way, something is coming on you now. You know, you, you have a power within you. And it is time for you to start using that power. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 tells us that power was within them now. And so now in Acts chapter 2, now they're experiencing that power. They're beginning to see it. God had to show them visually. Okay, you've been told about the Holy Spirit. We're gonna to get to that a little bit later because Jesus certainly promised all of them the Holy Spirit. But you can only imagine as He is promising them a Comforter and a Counselor, and that the One who is to come, and I, you know, He cannot come unless I leave. And they're listening to this in the upper room. And we read about this in John 14, 15, and 16. And he's teaching them all this stuff about the Holy Spirit. But I can only imagine hearing it for the first time. They have no idea really what he's talking about. And so he's laying the groundwork for what's going to happen next. And now, some weeks later, here it is happening. And so, and, and this amazing thing where the people, the onlookers, uh, begin to recognize, wait a second, these men are all from Galilee. In other words, they're all from the same place. They are Galileans, they all speak the same language. And yet, we're from all over the place. And how is it that we're hearing everything they're saying. And it's not a language that is second to us or tertiary to us. It is our own native tongue. And there's no other way to explain it, is there, church, except the power of God. See, if we're going to experience revival, okay, no, I don't think there's going to be you know flaming tongues dancing on our heads or anything like that if God wants there to be there will be okay but they had this supernatural experience because he had to show them in a very real way they wouldn't have understood it otherwise had it not been something like uh, you got something on your head there Uh, don't look buddy but you got it too You know, it's it's happening to every one of us. They look around the room, they're like, what is going on here? It's the power of God. And it's the power of God where? It is the power of God within each one of them. And so we think about this, and we think about, What does all this mean to us today? This idea of us, in order for us to experience a true revival, we have to understand the work of the Holy Spirit. And so as I mentioned in John 14, this is one of the places where Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And I appreciate this particular translation because it says, he... I remember years ago having lunch with one of our deacons at my former congregation. And we're sitting there at El Mazatlan Mexican restaurant. And we both have our heaping plates of chicken fajitas in front of us. And we're talking about the Holy Spirit. And I mention it. And he corrects me. And he says, well, first of all, I would expect you to know this. (laughs) He said it's an it's not an it it's a he. And I thought about it for a second and I said you know you're exactly right. We treat the Holy Spirit sometimes like it's this inanimate object, right? It's like, "Oh, there the Holy Spirit." No. Father, what son? Spirit, right, church? The Godhead three in one. Yeah. The Holy Spirit ain't an it. It's as much He as the Father and the Son. And so what does He do for us? He teaches us according to Christ our Savior. He teaches us all things and brings to our remembrance all that Jesus has said to us. In other words, we can sum this up and say, the Spirit gives us discernment. That ability to understand right from wrong. When Paul writes to Corinth and says that when you are tempted, that we are given a way out. And that's that reminder, that vivid and yet somewhat unpleasant reminder, right church? That we can't blame our sin on someone else. That yes, there may be a time in our life when we're experiencing some kind of vulnerability or some kind of weakness, but that ultimately our sin is on us. Why? Why? Because if we're children of God and the Spirit is giving us this sense of discernment, saying, don't do that. And in every situation when we sin, there's a moment. It can be a brief moment, but there's a moment where we know right from wrong. And so then ultimately when we sin, it's our choice. And so the Helper, the Holy Spirit gives us discernment, the ability to know what we should do and what we shouldn't do. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Now think about that for a moment, church family. God's Spirit upon our baptism dwells within us. The power of God, a part of God, is in us. Is that not incredible? And yet, we wake up in the morning sometimes, and the last thing we're thinking about is that I have God inside of me. But yet, He is. And praise God that He is. Because of all that he does for us. That spirit of discernment. Dwelling within us. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You were not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now... What does it mean to honor God with our bodies? Well, we do everything with our bodies, right? We have thoughts. It's within our bodies, right? When we say something, well, it's coming out of our body. When we do something, anything, we're using our body. So in other words, we honor God with our actions, We honor God with our speech. We honor God with our thoughts. And if you're sitting here right now at about this time going, Whoa, because not everything that comes out of my mouth honors God. Yeah, I understand that feeling. Not every thought between my ears honors God. I too understand that feeling. Like the rest of you, I am a sinner, saved by God's grace. And so, when we think about what it means to honor God with our bodies, it just it goes way beyond not wearing pajama pants to Walmart. Or my philosophy that a man should never wear a tank top under any circumstances... Okay, if you're running a 5K or you're at the beach, I'll give you a pass. But no, that was meant to be a little funny. Sorry, tank top wearers. And so, so yeah, we honor God with our bodies. What we do, what we say, what we think. We honor God because God dwells within us. We are His temple. Romans 8, 8.26, excuse me, Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do, do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with signs too deep for words. If you have those moments, church, where you are burdened with something so heavy, you're dealing with the stuff of life and you have absolutely no idea what to even say in your prayer life a prayer life that we've already established is vital to any child of God and you just don't know what to say God give me the words well God does Because that Spirit that is in us, He intercedes for us. Some translations say with with groans that that words cannot express. I like this here with sighs too deep for words. Just before getting up here and delivering this message this morning, I'm sitting over there on pew number five on the end as I always do I walk in here in the morning and I go one okay there's my there's my row now sometimes I can figure it out by who's here you know sometimes you know it's it's just Matt sitting alone in that section of the of the church right Matt and so we're a little thin in that section this morning so I count the pews and I set my stuff down And as I was sitting there worshiping this morning, at one point I looked over to Stacy and I said, how many times have I, I don't say sigh, in our family we say huff. I said, how many times have I huffed this morning? Because it's, (sighs) and she said, I don't know, I quit counting. (laughs) Because I don't know. This is one of those Sundays, for whatever reason, I was particularly worked up about this somebody told me this morning I don't like standing in front of people I said I don't either it's true but think about that church those moments when the stuff you're dealing with is so heavy that you stop breathing for a second because that's really what a sigh is it's like you're playing catch up it's like you stop breathing for a second And then you just kind of finally remember to let it out. To think that the Spirit's doing that for us. He is doing that for each and every one of us. In those moments where we have no words. Because we are so overwhelmed. With whatever it is that's on our plate. With whatever it is that we're experiencing in that moment. And there's the Spirit saying, It's okay. I've got this for you. I'll do the heavy sighing. I'll do the groaning. You just breathe. I'll talk to God on your behalf. I'll talk to the Father because I've got the words that are failing you right now. A church family, as uncomfortable and a little freaked out as we might be, the idea of God dwelling within us. I don't know about you, but that verse right there is what I come back to Over and over and over again. Because that gives me comfort. It's verses like that in Romans 8 that remind me that God loves us so much that he says, I know your weaknesses. I know you're going to have those moments when you don't even know how to pray to me. And so he gives us his spirit. And in His divine word, He gives us the Psalms. I was having a conversation with someone this week because he didn't know what the book of Lamentations was about. And not being a smart aleck, I said, well, it's about lament. And then we had a conversation about what lament is. And how somewhere between the Israelites and us today, lament has sort of been lost for a lot of people. But it's that moment, and I, I told him about Patrick Reed's story. Some of you have heard me mention it once before. Some of you may have been here on a men's night when Patrick told it himself, I think. When he said that he was operating a counseling center in Scotland. And as you can imagine, someone who counsels people, they're hearing about people's lives. They're hearing the rough stuff each and every day. And that kind of stuff weighs on you. When you're constantly listening to other people's baggage, a necessary and vital vocation that it is, But to that person that's working in that particular helping profession, it gets heavy. And he had decided, he was trying so hard to be an atheist. He was just deciding, you know, no loving God is going to allow this much stuff to happen. He was hearing about people going through abuse and neglect and all the things in their lives that that had brought them to where they were that day. But he said he couldn't get there. He couldn't just decide that God doesn't exist. He said he came home to his apartment one day and looked up at the ceiling and said, I know you're real, but I just don't like you very much. And this guy I was having the conversation this week, his name is Justin, I said, man, I said, you got to know in that moment God is like, yeah. Why? Why? When someone looks at you and says, I don't like you very much, most of us don't go, woohoo! Don't like me very much. All right. No, but God is saying, I'm going to focus on that first part, that you know I'm real. Because if you acknowledge my presence, then we're establishing a relationship right there. I have no doubt that God celebrated in that moment. Ha ha, he knows I'm real. Yeah, well guess what buddy, I got something in store for you. And oh, the sermons he has preached since then. Oh, the lessons that man has taught. Oh, the people that have come to Christ or made sense of their faith because of his teaching. A guy who wanted so desperately to say, I don't think there's a God. But he couldn't get there. In Acts 2, 42 through 47, we read, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Now, this isn't the Bible giving us some roadmap to commune living. This is the only time we ever see evidence of this kind of thing happening. This particular kind of thing where they're selling property and laying the money at the apostles' feet. And we read more about this over in Acts chapter 4, I believe it is. But, what this is showing is that the Spirit made the people care about more than just themselves. Because church, that's what the Spirit does. Because the Spirit was helping them to understand this is not all about you. And so for those people who had traveled from faraway places and come, they were running out of provisions. Running out of money, running out of food. And so, others recognized that. They did not want to leave Jerusalem. They didn't want to leave the temple courts. They didn't want to leave each other's homes where people were opening their homes and saying, Hey, come on, you followers of the way, come on in here and let's... uh, I've got a meal for us. You know, let's eat. Let's praise God. And they were doing it every day. Now, you talk about revival... There was a spirit of revival going on among these people. But the heart of this and why I bring this scripture up today is because the spirit that dwelled within them helped them to understand this isn't just about you and your relationship with God. It's about other people as well. There was a philosopher named Houston Smith. He got his Ph.D. at the University of Chicago and he taught at some different schools and one of them being MIT. He was head of the philosophy department there uh, in the Boston area and and, uh, taught philosophy at the college level for uh, close to 40 years. And uh, he had grown up as a child of missionary parents and he was actually born in China. And Houston Smith uh, could, you know, he understood the world's religions. He understood Judaism and he understood Islam and uh, Buddhism and Sikhism and all the different religions of the world. And then people would say to him, though, with with your vast understanding, Doctor Smith, of all the religions of the world and everything they have to offer, why is it that you have remained a Christian? And he said, it's because Christianity is the only one of those religions that specifically asks us to bless others. That our relationship with God is only good insofar as we care about those around us. If you remember, Jesus was asked about this. What are the greatest commands? And in Luke, he says, well, you know, you know what the greatest commands are. You know, love the Lord your God, and then love your neighbor as yourself. But who's my neighbor? And in Luke, he starts telling a story, doesn't he? He said, well, there was a man, and he was traveling on the road. And then some people jumped him and beat the stew out of him. And I'm obviously paraphrasing here. And so they left him for dead in the ditch. And then along came the priest and he walked by their side. He was more concerned about their laws of cleanliness. And that dude's bleeding and we don't touch blood. And then here comes the Levite. And he comes along, and that's the tribe of Israel that keeps the temple. And, and he's like, whoa, you be, can't, can't be involved in that. That's unclean right there. And then of all people, it, well, it was one of those nasty old Samaritans, right, that came along. And not only did he put the guy on his donkey and takes him to a nearby inn and then gets the provisions necessary and bandages up his wounds, but then tells the innkeeper, "You know, here's some money for the next few days, and I'll be back by. And if I owe you anything more for keeping him fed and keeping his wounds bandaged, then you let me know, and I'll settle up with you again." And Jesus says, "Now, you tell me, who was the neighbor?" He's like, "Yeah, it's the last one." What did Jesus say? That's what you need to go do. Go love people. Go take care of people. Go take care of even the stranger who is hurting. Houston Smith said, The goal of spiritual life is not altered states, but altered traits. In other words, spiritual life changes us. It changes how we act. It changes how we treat people. You want to know what the Spirit, what kind of fruit the Spirit bears? We know it well. It's in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what life in the Spirit brings. May God help us to be those people. May God help us to be people who experience true personal revival through reading His Word, through prayer, through honest repentance, turning away from our sin. And that by understanding that the Spirit of God dwells within us and what the Spirit of God does for us, that we feel better equipped to go outside these walls today, church. And to love others, to grant mercy, to extend grace. When they don't deserve it, of course when they don't deserve it. Because which one of us deserves it? But God does it for us. And that's all God is asking us to do for others. If you're with us today and you have not yet put on Christ in baptism... Why not let today be the day? And if you're with us this morning and you've got something that you would like us to pray with you about, we're here to receive you as we offer the invitation. Let's stand.